This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, including your story. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us with the help of John Elfner, a high school history teacher and a regular contributor to our show. John is always on the hunt for a good story, and recently he asked his Uncle Henry, a Kentucky horse breeder, if he had one. Henry showed John a recent newspaper article about William King Solomon, a gravedigger who may have saved the town of Lexington during the cholera epidemic of 1833. Kentucky journalist Sam Terry tells the story of the man they called King Solomon. In November of 1854, the Reverend William M. Pratt recorded in his diary... I preached the funeral today of old King Solomon, 79 years old. He was born the same year with Henry Clay and had drunk whiskey enough to float a man of war. He was once a person of considerable enterprise and business, but he had been given to drink a great many years and yet was inoffensive and of great integrity. Quite a number of citizens attended his funeral, and he had a good coffin worth $30, and some 17 carriages processed to the cemetery. The deceased was William King Solomon, a Virginia native who claimed to have been a boyhood acquaintance of Harry, as he called Henry Clay, jesting that his own work as a digger of cellars and cisterns was less elevated than the famous statesman. His loyalty to Clay was unprecedented. When one of Clay's opponents for re-election offered strong drink to Solomon in exchange for his vote, Solomon took him up on the offer and then proceeded to vote for Clay. When asked if he had voted as agreed, Solomon replied, You may have been foolish enough to try to bribe me, but I'm not foolish enough to vote for you. During Solomon's lowest time of life, his wife died and his son ran away, sending him into a liquor-filled existence that reduced him to a vagabond whom Lexingtonians nicknamed King Solomon. By 1833, Solomon's existence, living on the streets and intoxicated, led a local judge to sell him as a servant for a period of nine months. Solomon's purchaser was the least likely of buyers. Aunt Charlotte was a free black woman who had apparently known Solomon in Virginia when he was a free white male and she was an enslaved black female. Her owners having given her freedom and bequeathed her some land, she supported herself by selling baked goods. At Solomon's auction, two Transylvania Medical College students bid on Solomon, viewing him as being near the end of his life and a future cadaver for their studies. Aunt Charlotte was the winning bidder for Solomon. Her exact bid remains a mystery. Some sources say she paid 13 cents, while others claim it was $13, and yet another maintains it was 50 cents. Whatever the price, King Solomon, the white vagrant, became the temporary property of Aunt Charlotte, the free woman of color, setting in motion one of Kentucky's renowned tales of the past. Aunt Charlotte freed Solomon, and true to his addiction, he managed to acquire some liquor before wandering back to her home where he passed out. When Solomon awakened, 
He found the town of Lexington in distress with people dying of cholera, one of the most feared maladies of the early decades of the 19th century. Referred to as Asiatic cholera due to its origin in the Far East, cholera is contracted by ingesting the Vibrio cholerea microbe via water that is contaminated with human feces. Now at this time, in 1833, the town branch ran through Lexington and heavy rains caused its banks to overflow while privies overflowed into the ground, creating a deadly mixture that poured into sinkholes only to emerge through springs and other sources of drinking water. A single bucket of contaminated water from a well or public pump had the power to wipe out an entire household. Naive individuals, unaware of the contamination, soon became victims, stricken with voluminous diarrhea after drinking even a small quantity of infected water. There was little help for the victims. Lexington's only hospital at the time was the Eastern Kentucky Lunatic Asylum. The town's physicians were principally faculty members at Transylvania's Medical College. Three of the physicians died. Another was out of town and learning of the epidemic chose not to return. And yet another rendered himself useless after a fall while trying to care for the sick and the dying. The Lexington Observer and Reporter published the names of more than 500 victims in a town with a population of 6,000. The hungover Solomon found that Aunt Charlotte, like most Lexington residents, was packing to evacuate the town. Historians have pondered how Solomon could have managed to avoid contracting cholera, most drolly concluding that his body was so well fortified with alcohol he was immune to the disease. Solomon, however, refused to leave and he began burying the dead as the gravediggers had left along with thousands of other residents. Victims of cholera were not afforded the luxury of funerals or even coffins with many bodies being wrapped in the bed linens on which they had died. Dozens of casualties were piled up near the old Episcopal burying ground on 3rd Street. Discerning the need, Solomon began digging graves to bury hundreds of bodies and in turn becoming the hero of Lexington. King Solomon continued to live in Lexington until his death in 1854. He was buried in the Lexington Cemetery, not far from the towering monument marking the grave of his boyhood friend, Henry Clay. In 1908, a large monument declaring King Solomon a hero was placed at his grave and Kentucky author James Lane Allen included the tale of King Solomon of Kentucky in his 1891 book, Flute and Violin and Other Kentucky Tales. The rest of Aunt Charlotte's story, however, remains unknown. And a special thanks to Kentucky journalist Sam Terry, and thanks as always to John Elfner. The story of William King Solomon, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and now we bring you the story of Game to Grow, a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. Here to explain what they do are Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Um, as we talk to, to people kind of around the country, and especially people who are not not in the gaming or um, or kind of geek um, atmosphere or culture, oftentimes they assume Dungeons and Dragons is a video game. So here's here's how I usually describe it. Um, there's one person who acts as the sort of head storyteller and referee of the game. And they know most of the rules and they can explain most of the rules to the game. And that person's usually referred to as the dungeon master or the game master. And they sit at the head of the table and they describe stuff that's happening in the world. And then everybody else who's sitting at the table um, is uh, just playing a character in that world, a single character. And they have a piece of paper that tells them things like how strong their character is or what kind of equipment they have or what kinds of abilities they have. And this all takes place in a fantasy world, much like Lord of the Rings, where there are swords and bow and arrow and uh, full suits of armor and, of course, magical spells. And the dungeon master might describe something like, all of you have uh, decided to venture into this dark cave where you can see that there are there's mildew growing on the walls, there's mold, um, and there is a um, dripping coming from the stalactites in the ceiling. You're here because you've heard of a tremendous treasure um, that apparently was lost in these caves a long time ago, and you've decided you're going to go after that treasure. Maybe even you have a map to help guide you through. And as you travel further down into the cave, it's very dark, um, but you can see that the walls have been carved out like somebody has carved them with man-made tools. And you travel deeper and deeper into this cave system until finally you open up into a, a large room. And in this large room, you can see um, across the way is a door on the other side of a very large gap. Um, and the gap seems to stretch very far down into the ground. But the thing that really catches your eye is that hanging above the gap, uh, clinging for dear life, appears to be a small gnome man. And he's uh, hanging from a rope. And he sees you as you walk in and he uh, shouts to you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy somebody finally showed up. Please help me. And at this point in time, uh, the dungeon master then says, what do you do? And all of the players at the table get to decide what their character does to sort of overcome this this challenge or this situation. So they might do all sorts of things. A uh, warrior character might um, leap across the pit and try to grab the gnome uh, to save him from, from falling down into the pit. A, um, a ranger or an archer character um, might shoot a bow with a, with a rope tied to it and tightrope walk across the, the pit and, and um, save the gnome that way. Or a wizard character who can cast magic spells might uh, use a magic spell that can pull the rope and get it swinging so the gnome might be able to jump off. And no matter what they do, they're going to do it together because all the players at the table are all working on a team together. They're not competing with each other. Instead, they are working cooperatively towards a common goal. And in this case, the common goal of the game is not the most points. It's not even to achieve a particular goal. Even in this case um, of the example I gave, you're not trying to get treasure. You're trying to tell a story. 
And that's one of the really brilliant things about um, games like Dungeons and Dragons is that the point of the game is to tell a story. And because that's really the goal of the game, because that's really the place that you're trying to get to, everybody at the table might have a different idea for what that story looks like, but they know they're all working towards that goal. Um, and that's what really turns it into a, a brilliant and amazing experience. As the dungeon master continues to describe things in the world, continues to describe whether or not the players' um, uh, attempts to to do those things are successful, um, and the players get to roll dice to help add randomness and and help determine the the outcomes of their action, and get to really have the most open-ended gaming experience you can possibly have, where they can decide and and try anything that comes to their minds in a very loose um, uh, rule system that allows you to be very flexible with the outcomes of it. A lot of game masters, to to my chagrin, um, I don't like the fact that they often see themselves as adversaries of the players. There's oftentimes an antagonistic relationship where the game master uh, sees themselves as needing to challenge, and there's like a ha-ha, your characters are going to die today because my monsters are going to be stronger than them. And we don't do anything like that. Um, our goal as game masters is very much to challenge the players, but also to keep them engaged and keep them excited. So we do that by challenging them the right amount, um, building on their ideas while they build on our space, um, on, on our ideas, because we are uh, we're co- co-creating and collaborating in this in this game where that's oftentimes uh, for many of our players the first time an adult has said, what do you care about? What do you want to do? So then the players now see an adult who is playing with them, really playing with them in a way that is very healing to a lot of a lot of participants, especially ours, who are identified at school as, as oftentimes being an outcast. People tell them what to do all the time, very rarely say, what do you care about? What is something that you want out of life? And so this is an opportunity where they can push boundaries and see what happens when they take up space and then have an adult be excited about the choices that they're making. We started doing what we're doing right now using Dungeons and Dragons in therapeutic social skills groups largely by accident. Adam and I both started playing Dungeons and Dragons when we were pretty young. Uh, Got a lot out of it. We played games with our friends. We got to use all the Uh, all the mechanics of the games and the storytelling of the game to really get a lot of social outlet when we were kids. I, Adam Davis, was um, studying drama therapy because I had wanted to use the the drama games and experiences that I had had as a performer and then as a drama teacher to help kids, um, help kids become more into themselves and learn about themselves and, and how they could interact with the world better. And so Adam and I met in grad school, and I started picking up um, an after-school program that was a Dungeons & Dragons program for quirky kids who needed a little, a little guidance and social support. And I took the game over and realized that Dungeons & Dragons is actually a, a perfect uh, modality for sit-down drama therapy. So we uh, started using the game a little more intentionally, and then um, just barely scratching the surface, and then when... Um, my facilitator at the time left to go pursue other interests. There was an opening, and I knew Adam from grad school, so we had kind of like done that thing where we uh, we, we brought uh, some things from our personal lives as sort of a get-to-know-you activity in the very beginning of the quarter, and both Adam and I brought dice 
we knew from across the room that we were both named Adam. We both liked dice and games, and so we knew we were kindred spirits. Uh, so um, we we had that great moment, that sort of nerd nod uh, <laughs> from from across the room. Um, and then uh, after the class, uh, Adam Davis came up to me and he said, hey, do you want to get paid to come and play improv games in Dungeons and Dragons? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like the best. Um, and at the time, the group was really just a, a sort of uh, drop-in social group. Um, and then when we came in, we started saying, there's a lot we can do with this. And we were both in a state of uh, sort of master's program um, desire to, to want to use all the amazing theories and all the amazing stuff that we were learning. And we um, really had this tremendous opportunity to start diving in and saying, oh my gosh, we're, this, this is exactly what we can be using all of these amazing theories, all these amazing things that we're learning, and we can apply them right here, but through the game of Dungeons & Dragons that we grew up playing. And when we return, we're going to hear more from Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to Grow, and it's a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons & Dragons as a tool in therapy. And, my goodness, I never thought of anything like this before. But by the way, people who naysay and talk down so many of the games that young boys and girls play, I don't think see the virtues a lot of these games and a lot of the social skills that can be learned playing them, and particularly Dungeons and Dragons because of its creative space and how in the end the world was created and in the end dictated by the actors and players themselves. So when we come back, more of this story, Adam John's story, and Adam Davis's story. Two pals who figured out a way to help people at risk, people in need. Game to Grow, their story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the story of Game to Grow. And by the way, they hail from Kirkland, Washington. And as so many of our stories do, they hail from all over this great country. And some are quirky stories, some are big, bold stories about founders and Henry Ford. But these are some of our favorites. They're not big, bold stories. They're better than that. They're small, risk-taking, quirky stories. They're happening all around us every day. If you have a story like it, something somebody's doing to impact their neighborhood, their neighbor even, just that story, one person helping one person, we're as interested in that here in Our American Stories as Henry Ford's story or George Washington's. We treat them all the same. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now back to the story of Adam Davis and Adam Johns 
and how one of their childhood treasures turned into a grad school exercise and ultimately a full-time occupation in therapy. We got our first group going. The parents saw the outcomes. The parents started talking to other parents, inviting us to speak at other engagements. And then all of a sudden, the, the ball started to roll. And then before we knew it, we have continued to grow. And we are now full-time therapeutic game masters and executive directors of game to grow we have a, a sort of a, a theory at game to grow where players play the characters that they need to play so we have a lot of players who, like I said, are socially isolated, who don't have a lot of social aptitude, and they don't really have a lot of experience being charismatic or confident, but they pick characters who are aspirational. A lot of players come in and they, they pick characters who are military leaders, who have on their character sheet that they are very charismatic, that people believe in them. And so we know right away that that's something that the, that these young people want to want to play with and want to explore. Um, we have players that come in choosing to play characters that are very similar to themselves, lone wolves who are very isolated in the game, and then we can help that character grow, and thus the player grow. And that lone wolf character who wants to go off and solve every problem by themselves, now we put them in a situation in the game where their character needs to rely on somebody else because Dungeons & Dragons is a fellowship game. It's a game where every character has a unique and special ability that, that makes them special. And that's a great life lesson, is that you can't do everything by yourself. And people are gonna rely on you and you are going to rely on people. And here's what that looks like to ask for help. And here's how good it feels to be able to be the person who can step up and help out the team. In one particular instance uh, where a player really made a choice that I was not expecting, um, the characters had all made their way through this dungeon, and they came up into a room where there was, um, on in one corner of the room, a massive troll of legend uh, who had been imprisoned there. And in the other corner of the room was a series of three unlabeled switches. And uh, across the other side of the room was a metal door that was closed. And it quickly was explained to the players that um, one of the three unlabeled switches would open the door on the other side of the room, allowing them to progress further into their dungeon. Um, and the other two switches, when pulled together, would release the, the massive troll of legend upon the players, but also upon the world itself. And usually how this works is that it's sort of a, um, an interesting uh, challenge where the players can talk to the troll, they can figure out uh, is the troll lying to us about which switch is which, and, and it's sort of a mix of a puzzle and a social challenge. In this case, we had one player who uh, had just joined the group, and the player had described their character as being impulsive and having um, a lot of uh, hyperactivity. And it was an appropriate character for that player to play because <laughs> that player also struggled with those exact same challenges. And that player said, um, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. And I've run that scenario several times. That was the first time anybody had ever just decided to pull all three switches. So all of a sudden I had to decide, okay, well, what, what's going to happen here? And what are the consequences of, of effectively just running ahead? And all the other players at the table had gotten out like graph paper and they were getting ready to like solve the puzzle. And they just stood and stared slack-jawed at their teammate who, who might have just done them all in. And what I said was the troll runs across the room and he picks up uh, the impulsive player's character getting ready to eat them whole. 
and all the other characters, I said, you're 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 the players at the table. I said, you you can leave now. The door is open. Uh, but if you leave, you'll be leaving your teammate to be eaten by this this massive troll of legend, and you'll also be leaving the troll to to wreak havoc upon the world. You need to decide what your characters would do here. They are heroes in this world. What would they do? And they turned and they debated it with each other and they eventually decided that they would help their teammate. And so they enticed the troll back into the the cage um, and re-imprisoned the troll. And at the end of that session, we always do a checkout at the end of every session. And at the end of that session, there um, the players all checked out with each other and the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys helped me out there because my character is really impulsive and it's clear that they're going to have to learn how to be less impulsive. And I'm hoping that your characters will help teach them that. And one of the other players at the table also said in the checkout, I'm super glad that you did that because we're all here to basically learn how to navigate this space, how to learn these skills and be better at this. And your character doing that helped make me feel like, like I really belong here. I'm, I struggle with some of the same challenges and it helped me feel like I belong. And it was an amazing moment for them to realize that they're all in a similar place and they've all struggled to make friends, to connect with people. Um, and this is a place where that doesn't matter, where they can all get along and where they can m- maybe have missteps but they can feel a sense of acceptance here. Part of our mission is to get more games into more communities around the country and around the world. We have traveled and we've done presentations and trainings for therapists who want to get involved. So what we've seen is that a lot of therapists don't have a lot of experience with role-playing games. And then the big barrier to entry, they, they hear the stories, they get excited, they want to participate in this emerging uh, intervention strategy, but they've, they're under-experienced in a game like Dungeons & Dragons. So one of our missions is to create a product that they can then take and it'll help them get started much faster. This project is called Critical Core. It is a beginner box for therapeutic game masters to start helping their participants almost right out of the box. So it's got a really simplified rule set. It's got a facilitator's guide for how to facilitate the game to be a positive pro-social environment with all the improv and all the stuff that we have added on as uh, incorporating the play therapy and drama therapy that we have into our game. But then also it's got a very specific module design where the storylines are directly related to a real-world areas of social growth. So we might have the room that fills up with lava, and that's a way to build frustration tolerance. Or the players have to go and get past a guard, and that guard might have a slightly downturned mouth that looks like a frown, and then we can work on theory of mind skills and perspective taking, where now we can talk about uh, nonverbal social cues and the fact that that guard being sad or upset has nothing to do with you. You have no idea why he's making that facial expression, but in order to get past the guard into the next room in the dungeon or in the castle, we have to be able to relate to him, understand him, and communicate with him. So the, those three components going into Critical Core, uh, I think, will really be how we can get this project out there. We, like Microsoft's vision of a computer on every desk, we want a game on every desk, a game in every school a game in every hospital, a game in every clinic and therapist's office. Uh, That is our mission. So we don't want people to just game more. We want people to game better. Don't just game. Game to grow. 
And what an interesting story. At first, when I was reading about it, I thought, why should I care? But as so often happens here on this show, you start to hear the story and you go, my goodness, what an interesting way to do therapy. Therapeutic game masters. And it just, well, it makes sense. And we've been telling Adam Johns and Adam Davis' story. Great job on this, Robbie. Robbie just sort of bumped into it. These guys are in Kirkland, Washington. And we love to tell stories from all over this great country. Big ones, small ones. Again, Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to grow. And I love what they said. Don't just game more. Game better. This is Our American Stories. We continue here with Our American Stories, and we love telling stories from the great American literature canon, and today we're bringing you another. You've probably read Walt Whitman, or at least you were supposed to in your high school English class, but even if you've heard of Leaves of Grass, you've probably never heard this tale that Hillsdale College professor Kelly Franklin brings us. It was winter in 1862 and Americans were fighting our nation's civil war. In mid-December, the Union suffered a disaster at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The entrenched Confederates cut down wave after wave of Union soldiers, leaving the Northern Army with 13,000 casualties, more than double those of the Southern defenders. From the Union standpoint, things looked pretty bleak for the formerly United States of America. News of the casualties hit the papers right away, and on December 16th, the American writer Walt Whitman learned that his brother George had been wounded at Fredericksburg. With no other information, Whitman set out to find his brother. He searched the hospitals in D.C. with no luck until a friend lent him money and got him a pass to the front, where George, if he were still alive, might be found. Then, in Falmouth, Virginia, Whitman located his brother safe and sound with only a minor wound to his face. But Whitman also saw something else, something he never forgot. Outside a field hospital, Whitman saw a heap of amputated limbs, enough to fill a one-horse cart. Horrified, he wrote in his diary. At the foot of a tree, immediately in front, a heap of feet, legs, arms, and human fragments cut bloody, black and blue, swelled and sickening. By 1862, Walt Whitman had already achieved some fame and some notoriety as a poet that celebrated the human body. I am the poet of the body. He had written in his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass. And I am the poet of the soul. The man's body is sacred and the woman's body is sacred. But in that grisly moment outside the field hospital, Whitman got his first real glimpse of the human cost of the Civil War. It wasn't long before he knew what he wanted to do about it. In January of 1863, Whitman returned to Washington, D.C., where he began perhaps the greatest undertaking of his life. While the war raged on, Whitman threw himself into the task of visiting the sick and wounded men, both Northerners and Southerners, who languished in the Civil War hospitals. The Union already had many doctors and nurses, but Whitman intuitively knew that people need more than medical treatment to get well. 
companionship, comfort, morale boosting, even a kind word. And as a volunteer, Whitman could provide that to the soldiers. He worked a part-time job in the mornings and spent the afternoons and evenings in the hospitals. He talked with the men, sat with them. He brought a satchel full of little gifts, candy, clothes, fruit, money, tobacco, stamps, and paper for writing letters. When the weather was hot, he brought them ice cream. While in the hospitals, Whitman wrote down the names and descriptions of the soldiers in his notebooks, along with anything special they asked for. Henry Benton, Company E, 7th Ohio Volunteer, Ward K, Bed 44. Wants a little jelly and an orange. Wounded last Sunday at Chancellorsville in leg. I saw the bullet and a piece of the bone. Stout hearty Ohio boy. Henry Eberly, Bed 8, Ward K, Company H, 28th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wants a German prayer book. Wounded in the left shoulder pretty bad. Not all of his visits were cheerful. Of a man named Hiram Johnson from the 157th New York Volunteers, Whitman wrote in his notebook, This is the bed of death. Although he supported the Union, Whitman left the politics of the war outside the hospital doors and treated the wounded equally. In his memoir of the Civil War, Whitman later described taking care of a 19-year-old boy from Baltimore whose right leg had been amputated. He writes, As I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him and he was quite alone. Many of these Civil War soldiers died far from family and home. Some of them even died unknown and unidentified. It was the era before dog tags and DNA testing. In March of 1864, Whitman described one of these cases in a letter to his mother. Whitman wrote of the arrival of a train carrying sick and wounded soldiers. Mother, it was a dreadful night, pretty dark, the wind gusty and the rain fell in torrents. One poor boy, he seemed to me quite young, he was quite small. He groaned some as the stretcher bearers were carrying him along, and again as they carried him through the hospital gate. They set down the stretcher and examined him, and the poor boy was dead. The doctor came immediately, but it was all of no use. The worst of it is, too, that he is entirely unknown. There was nothing on his clothes or anyone with him to identify him, and he is altogether unknown. Mother, it is enough to rack one's heart such things. Very likely his folks will never know in the world what has become of him. And many men died unknown in the war. Many were hastily buried or lost altogether in the chaos and aftermath of battle. This meant that families and friends were denied many of the rituals of grief. But Walt Whitman was also at the height of his career as a poet, and during the war he would write poems of grief and mourning that would help him and the nation express those terrible losses. Walt Whitman had worked with words and language for most of his life. Born on Long Island, he supported himself from a very young age, working at a printing shop, in a law office, and as a teacher. But he soon found his way to authorship, writing journalism, conventional poems, and fiction. Then, in 1855, Whitman published his experimental book, Leaves of Grass, 
which violated all the current norms of poetry and celebrated the full range of human life, from democracy to sexuality, writing in powerful free verse about the body, the soul, nature, and city life, and the labors of working-class men and women. But now, Whitman had a war to write about, and at the end of it, he published a book of war poems called Drum Taps. In one of his best poems, Vigil Strange, I kept on the field one night, Whitman recreates an imaginary moment of grief and burial for the fallen dead. The poetic speaker describes seeing a young soldier struck down in the heat of battle. Unable to stop, for the conflict rages on around them, the narrator charges ahead, but returns that night to keep vigil for a boy he calls both son and comrade. Long there and then in vigil I stood, dimly around me the battlefield spreading, vigil wondrous and vigil sweet there in the fragrant silent night. The speaker stays with the body all night. Till at latest lingering of the night, indeed just as the dawn appeared, my comrade I wrapped in his blanket enveloped well his form, folded the blanket well, tucking it carefully overhead and carefully under feet. And there and then, and bathed by the rising sun, my son in his grave, in his rude dug grave, I deposited. Ending my vigil strange with that, vigil of night and battlefield dim, vigil for boy of responding kisses, never again on earth responding, vigil for comrade swiftly slain, vigil I never forget how as day brightened I rose from the chill ground and folded my soldier well in his blanket and buried him where he fell. Like in most of his poems, the soldier remains nameless, which means that he could be anyone, known or unknown, Yankee or rebel, any of the more than 600,000 men who perished in the war. Whitman continued to visit the hospitals on and off throughout the war. He once estimated that he had visited somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 soldiers. He also wrote that, after his time in the hospitals, the pages of his notebooks were actually stained with soldiers' blood. Walt Whitman would have a long and fruitful life and career as a writer, right up to his death in 1892. But he always thought about his hospital years as something central to his life. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course the most profound lesson of my life. Those years of hospital visits represent a tremendous act of service to his fellow Americans during a time of war. While we tend to remember him as one of America's great poets, Walt Whitman's sacrificial charity during the Civil War may be his greatest legacy. But we can also be thankful he was a writer, although he once claimed that the real war will never get in the books. Walt Whitman's diaries, letters, poems, and memoirs constitute a powerful eyewitness account, a moving record of one man's mind and heart during this bloody chapter in the story of American history. And great job on that, Robbie. And thank you to Hillsdale professor Kelly Franklin for telling us about a great man and a part of his life so few people know. And how moving when that young man, a rebel soldier, said to him, I am a rebel soldier. And he said, I didn't know that, but it made no difference. And we should all be learning from that day to day in life that Whitman was there to just attend to the needs of the fallen. 
And Hillsdale College, by the way, this is, this is what you learn there, and this is why we work so carefully and closely with them and cultivate this kind of material for you and for your families. And if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu for their free and terrific online courses. Kelly Franklin's story, Walt Whitman's story, the story of the American Civil War in a way you hadn't heard it before. And by the way, in a nation of 31,600,000 fell, 31,600,000 dead. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And periodically, we bring you just arcane and fun stories about, well, stuff that's just laying around the house, stuff you take for granted. We've told the story of candy corn, where it came from, the story of the carrot, the story of the beard, and the history and story of the toilet. And today, we bring you one of those great all-purpose things around the house that, well, try living without it. We're talking about the story of duct tape. Duct tape or duct tape. Whatever you decide to call it, the term is often used to refer to all sorts of different cloth tapes with a polyethylene plastic coating. It's usually silvery gray, but it's also available in other colors and even printed designs nowadays. If you don't have one in your garage, you're probably a bad person. Get one. It could save your life someday. Not only can it be used for a wide range of MacGyver-like makeshift repairs, it can also be used for shelter, clothing, and medical purposes. And for the record, duct tape has been in the dictionary since 1899. Well, duct tape didn't show up until 1965. Besides, you shouldn't be using duct tape on actual duct work, even though that is how it was marketed to homeowners after World War II today. It wouldn't pass inspection anywhere in the United States. Y'all need water, air to survive, nutrients from a chewing tobacco and Coke 45. Some say we need love. Friendship, even pain. Others trust in money, but I think that's insane. Cause I only need one thing to survive. Find it at Walmart for a dollar forty-five. I'm talking about duct tape. You can bandage up your gut. I'm talking about duct tape. You can fix that crack in your butt. I'm talking about duct tape. There ain't nothing you can't do. The first material called duct tape was just long strips of cotton duck cloth used in making shoes stronger and for wrapping steel cables to protect them from corrosion. In fact, steel cables supporting the Manhattan Bridge were first covered in linseed oil and wrapped in duct tape before being set in 1902. But America's early love affair with duct tape went far beyond practical uses, even in the early years, much as it does today. In 1942, Gimbel's department store offered Venetian blinds that were held together with 
strips of duct tape. <clears throat> but the idea for what we know today as duct tape came from Vesta Stout, an ammunition factory worker and mother of two Navy sailors who worried that problems with ammo box seals would cost soldiers time in battle. So she wrote to then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt with the idea to seal the boxes with a fabric tape that she had tested at her factory. The letter was then forwarded to the War Production Board, who then put Johnson & Johnson in charge of the job. Duct tape was now in the battlefield. After the war, duct tape product was sold in hardware stores for household repairs until the Melvin A. Anderson Company of Cleveland, Ohio bought the rights to the tape in 1950 when it was still used to wrap air ducts. It was around this time that NASA started using duct tape on board every space mission. Astronauts have used duct tape in emergency situations like in 1970 when the square carbon dioxide filters from Apollo 13's failed command module had to be modified to fit round receptacles in the lunar module, which was being used as a lifeboat after an explosion en route to the moon. A workaround used duct tape, which got the lunar module CO2 scrubbers working again, saving the lives of the astronauts on board. And did you know that duct tape can be used to remove warts? While doctors don't actually recommend it, some studies suggest that covering warts with duct tape for an extended period is more effective than existing medical treatments. The TV show Mythbusters devoted three entire episodes to exploring some of duct tape's most extreme applications. The team was able to successfully use duct tape to patch a damaged airplane fuselage, construct a functioning cannon, and to lift a 5,000-pound car. Of the 18 myths they tested, only one was busted. It turns out you cannot use duct tape to stop a car that's traveling 60 miles an hour. And duct tape has even showed up in the sordid world of modern art. In 2019, a banana was duct taped to a wall, which sold in an art gallery for $120,000. Has duct taped a banana to a wall? Describe this banana duct taped to a wall. Duct taped this banana to a gallery wall. Another artist decided to peel it off the gallery wall and, yes, eat it. Because I was hungry. <laughs> And then there was the duct tape bandit. So I look like a duct tape bandit, baby. I'm not no duct tape bandit, you hear me? The dude who tried to rob a store using a mask made of duct tape. Duct tape? I mean, this, it's, it's just unbelievable. People don't think this really happened. And those are just some of the many uses for the awesome product we know as duct tape. Or duct tape. We leave you now with the duct tape song by an artist known as Van Pimpenstein. Or is it Van Pimpenstein? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, I wake up in the morning And I put on my duct tape shoes And I walk down my duct tape steps And I read the latest news And I think of all the problems That this world has to face And how I can solve them all With just a couple of rolls of tape well, I build the homeless some houses, put some clothes on their backs, and I fill the bellies with duct tape. Mm. It's my personal favorite snack, and I save all the trees. I just build a big duct tape fence, and I can do all that for about, oh, $50.17. So bring me all your problems, big, medium, small, and a couple rolls of duct tape, and I'll solve them all. I'm talking about duct tape. 
and it sure looks good. Talk about duct tape. Fix that crack in your butt. Talk about duct tape. There ain't nothing you can't do. So quit your job, live your life, or go buy a roll or two. That's for all your separatism, all the racist and all the hate. All your politics and your money ain't gonna fix them. They just can't. I say we wrap everybody in duct tape. All the whites and all the blacks, and the reds and oranges and the greens and purples and the mixes of this and that. And it will all be the same color, a beautiful shade of gray. And there'll be no reason to fuss or fight, 'cause we'll all be the same. Well, I'm talking about duct tape. This is our American stories, and all around this great country, well, in great cities, and more and more in suburbs, food trucks are popping up all over the country. A simple way for entrepreneurs to get started. Before they decide to perhaps pursue a restaurant, or maybe not, just keep it a food truck. Our favorite little pizza place down the road here in Oxford, Mississippi, Ferdinand's Pizza. Well, it started as food trucks, and now it's a it's a restaurant and a family-run restaurant. If you've ever been around Washington D.C., you can find food trucks and stands on almost every imaginable corner, selling almost everything from hamburgers to falafel. Osiris Hoyle was one of the many in Arlington, Virginia, to run such a stand, but one of few to turn it into a successful restaurant chain called District Taco. Monty Montgomery brings us the story. Here's Osiris. My name is Osiris Hoyle. I'm from Yucatan, Mexico. I pretty much grew up in in a farm where I had to do a lot of things on my own. When I was, I think, maybe 11 years old, I was selling newspapers, popsicles, flowers on my bicycle, and, and of course, helping my dad farm. And I learned how to cook with my mom. Pretty much every single day, she will wake me up and, and ask me what I wanted to eat. But of course, I had to help her. And not the way that I needed to cook it with her, but I needed to go get the ingredients for her. My, my mom, she's extremely picky but that's why her food is so delicious. She used to send me to the yard, right? And, um, and I'll pick tomatoes, habaneros, anything that she needed for her meal. And I'll come with tomatoes and, and she'll fill them and she's like, nope, this is not right. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not? It looks good and she'll feel it and she's like, feel it, you know? And it's so soft and for me it looked fine. You know, the same thing with limes, she would just see it and, and feel it, and she's like, nope, it's not good. You have to go get more. The standards were so high. And since then, my standards are high. In Mexico, you cannot choose what kind of life you want to live. You know what I mean? I remember that I didn't know I was poor until I met, you know, rich kids. When I went to my friends, probably when I was maybe 14, 13 years old, I realized that they, they had the toys and games or they have a better bathrooms than we did. And then I was like, man, I think, you know, we struggle. <laughs> so when I came to United States, you know, I came with a tourist visa and, and I decided to stay when I was 2000. I was working as a dishwasher. You know, I was making minimum wage at that point. And 
I met my wife at work and she was the waitress and I needed to learn English so I can ask her out, right? So I decided to learn this system and I used to work at this restaurant bar in Denver, Colorado. And even though I was underage, they let me stay at the bar, right? Because I was helping them with the, uh, the cake, you know, and bringing in and I wasn't drinking, but I, I stay at the bar talking to drunk people. They were the, my best teachers. I remember, you know, I was asking questions like, how do you say this? And, and then I'll write it down. And for some reason, they, I think they felt important. You know what I mean? I don't know, if you're drinking every day at the bar, something's going on, right? So they felt important. I think they, they liked the way that I was asking them questions and, and they were my best teachers. You know, I mean, the first week I thought, oh, they're gonna hate it, and, and no, I was, I was very welcome, and I did it for several years. But it got to the point where, at my birthday, Jennifer said, hey, what are you doing today? You wanna go for lunch? And I was like, yeah, I, I canceled everything, and, and you know, so I went for it. I was asking her out during that time for two years, three years, I think, and, and she never accepted it for some reason, probably because my English wasn't that good, but I was trying, right? And since then, uh, we got married and now we have three kids and it was great. In 2006, we moved to DC, you know, because things were going well and I was excited to try something new. And I found this construction job that I was paying a lot more than if I was just a, a cook. So that was great, you know, I took the job, even though I didn't have, a, have that much experience, but the construction company saw my potential. They, they saw that I could do more than just be a um, service guy or, so they sent me to school so I can learn how to read blueprints. And for me, I started seeing the potential to be something else than just a cook, you know, in the kitchen something professional where I can be the superintendent of the company and I can run projects. And I felt good, I, everything was going well. You know, I, I did projects where I actually was finishing before schedule, under budget, working my butt off. And I felt like, oh yeah, bonuses were coming. This is great. So we bought our house in 2007. And, and then, you know, we had a, a baby Everything was going so well, but in 2008, I got laid off when the economy was really, really bad. I still remember that moment because it was on a Friday afternoon. I was sweeping the project because we're, everybody just was leaving and, and I like to keep my projects clean for the weekend. And the, um, the actual owner of the company came and he gave me the news. It was very emotional. I started crying. I never, I never been fired before. And you know, I, I asked for my job back. My health insurance was through the company and I just, I felt defeated. I, I felt not being a man anymore. The man that my parents raised, the kid, you know, all these responsibilities, all my hard work. What just happened? I didn't understand it. So I said, look, just, Pay me whatever you want to pay me, okay? Just keep me on the on payroll, but keep my insurance, right? My wife, she's pregnant. We'll, we'll figure it out later. 
and they just couldn't keep me on, on their payroll. I took my truck, drove away, and I had to park in a parking lot. I was actually crying that moment because how I'm gonna go to my wife right now and tell her that I just lost my job. How I'm gonna do that? I've never been prepared for these moments, right? I have a house, a kid, she's pregnant, and what I'm gonna say? So I went to her job, I said, Jenny, I need to talk to you. And I, I had to say, I got, I got laid off, I got fired. And, and the only thing that she came out of her mouth, she hugged me and she said, don't worry, we'll be okay. Man, that, that, was, that was so powerful, you know? That was so powerful. For six months, seven months maybe, I was unemployed. I was looking for a construction job because I knew I know how to read blueprints now, but there was nothing available. I was getting depressed, all right? I was getting extremely depressed because I don't have a job, I'm babysitting my son. But in the weekends, I will invite my friends so we can like have some beers and make carne salsadas and these salsas. So my, but my friends, you know, used to say, oh Cyrus, this is so good. You should bottle this, you know, and, and sell it. And oh my goodness. And, and I'm like, I'll go home and I'll tell my wife, I think we, I think, People like my food. We might have something going on here. So and then I was making it for Mark Wallace too. A man who would go on to have a profound impact on Osiris's life. You know, when we move in, I remember that day when he was trying to put his play, play set or for his kids and I offered my help and, um, and we became very good friends and he loved my food. He always said, oh Cyrus, you should open your restaurant and there was one day I was drinking beer and eating ceviche with Mark. And he said, hey, Osiris, do you know, all the time when I go to Austin, Texas, there's, um, there's always food trucks, right? And they sell this amazing Mexican food, breakfast tacos, you know, and, and all that. And, and it's so delicious. And, and it's like, he turns around and it's like, Osiris, do, do you want to do it? And I'm like, well, yeah, if, you know, I mean, the food truck is a lot of money, but, you know, but the taco stand is only $25,000. And it's like, well, if you want to do it, I'll give you the money. And I'm like, wait, you want to give me the money? You know, I was like, what person give you, you know, that much money? First of all, I didn't finish my high school, okay? I went home and, and I couldn't believe it. Right? I, I talked to my wife about it. And at that point, I didn't have anything else going on. So I went back to Mark and I said, let's do it. Let's do it. And let's do it indeed. And what a story this is so far. When we come back, more from Osiris Hoyle and District Taco and how that all happened here on Our American Story.
And we return with our American stories and the story of Osiris Boyle, who had just been given a generous gift from his friend Mark Wallace to start his own taco stand and at the lowest point of his life. Here's Osiris. We bought the taco stand, you know, we named it District Taco, and it was born in 2009. And I went straight to Roslyn. Roslyn, Virginia, that was the first place we went. And I, I didn't do any research. The only thing I knew, there were big buildings. That's all what I knew. I'm like, oh, there's big buildings, there's a lot of people here, and we're gonna be here. But there was Chipotle right next door to me, okay? And there was Baja Fresh, all right? So I was in the middle. Man, I was like, ah, oh, what I'm doing here? I'm dead. But you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm a great sales guy, and, and I think I can, I can sell tacos, and I make pretty good tacos. It started to uh, two people inside the cart, and I was the cashier. I had one full runner, one guy that was helping us, you know, and someone else that was just making sure nothing is missing. The first week, we started making breakfast tacos, you know, in the morning, very early in the morning, 6 a.m., right? And, and it wasn't working, you know? People around D.C. don't know about breakfast tacos. But in Mexico, we always eat tacos with eggs, you know? So, so be it, you know? And I grew up with it, and, but people around here prefer, you know, uh, a bagel or a donut or, you know, or I don't know, or something else, right, for breakfast not a breakfast tacos. So he said, okay, well, breakfast is not, it's not helping me all the way, you know? Let me, let me start introducing what I'm really good at. For lunch, people don't wanna eat breakfast tacos, so I'm gonna start making pollo asado. The other day I was making mole poblano. Every single day I was changing the menu. Just like how my mom would ask me, what do you wanna eat today? I would change it, right? And I figured out also, okay, I wanna, I wanna make my, my carne asada. So I pretty much, I welded a, a, a grill that I bought at Home Depot, you know, just like a small grill. So I was grilling, you know, in, in front of people. When people were walking in, into their jobs, to their office, man, we're grilling out there, right? We're grilling our salsas. We had a table where we blended the salsas, you know, we're roasting our tomatoes and everything. It was a party, oh my goodness. Not everything, you know, worked perfectly. For two months, I wasn't making any money because I pretty much was making everything fresh. So I was making my guacamole fresh. I was making my pico de gallo fresh. So I was going to a restaurant depot every single day and I'll get back, watch the taco stand and drop everything, eat dinner with my family and then cook whatever it takes long time and my refrigerator full of avocados and my wife didn't like that very much but she knew that that was the only option we had here's another thing i used to drink so i can go to sleep so i'll have like a couple beers right one beer and one night i was cooking the beans and i turned the tv on right it was like 8 p.m i fall asleep family was sleeping so around 11 o'clock i don't know about you but when you burn beans. I don't know if you've done this before, but it smells so bad, right? Just the smell is really bad. And, and I woke up and I'm like, oh my goodness, what I've done. What a waste of product, you know, it's money. And I couldn't just 
burn the house, my family, you know, what I'm doing. And I was pretty angry. But at that moment, you know, I was extremely tired, extremely disappointed, right? And I was just praying because I was like, what I'm doing, I'm just wasting my time here, okay? Um, I almost burned the house, I'm extremely tired, I'm overweight because, you know, it's just, I've been eating a lot, not exercising, working long, long, long hours, and this is, I don't know, this is not working. So I was praying and I said, God, just send me a message because I don't know what else to do. And then my daughter started crying. And I remember, I was like, <laughs> I guess that's the message. I have to continue, you know, for the family, right? So I tie my shoes and get back to work. Location, location, location. It's something realtors say matters in the value of a house or a property. But it also turns out it matters if you own, say, a food truck or a taco stand, a movable location. And it became the key to Osiris's success. So we used to set up so early. And what we used to set up is the ABC Channel 7. We used to get there like 5.50. And, and the weatherman will get out, right? He start telling you about the weather and, but and then we're cooking bacon, right? Oh man, we're cooking bacon and I don't know about you, but when you're cooking bacon, oh, it smells so good, right? So he's, he always talk about us. Like at 6 a.m., it's like, he'll turn the cameras, you know, and we're like cooking bacon. We're like saying hi, you know, and that was, oh man, that was great, great time. So things were going so good. There were long lines to order from us. We were like six people in the tacos and working, and we probably served about 200 people. And the actual press started writing about us, and from being laid off to have a taco stand, I think that was a wake-up call that actually it can be done. And then I you know, came to my business partner, Mark Wallace, and I said, hey, Mark, I think we got something going on right here. Let's just open a restaurant. We opened the, the restaurant in 2010 in um, Arlington, Virginia. And from there, you know, we, uh, we bought a lot of equipment from Craigslist. So we pretty much built the restaurants by, by ourselves, but we didn't know what we were doing. I remember reviews online that said, don't think because you came from a taco stand, you're gonna be able to control a restaurant. But those reviews, I remember I was like, okay, just wait, I'm gonna show you. And then um, after a year, we felt like, okay, we have a model. And then we hired for a second store in DC. We hired contractors, okay, to build that store. But then I was like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I should call the guys that, you know, lay me off and see if they want to work with me. So I went and I hired them back. It's funny because I used to be their employee and now I'm their client. Yeah, that, the way how things work out, right? And from there, you know, now we have 12 stores open and over, just a little bit over 450 employees, and we're going from there. You know, I think all my life has always been about what other people had and we didn't have, and I think I'm really thankful that I didn't have it all in the beginning. And you've been listening to the story of Osiris Hoyle, 
And a great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern a couple of years ago, and now one of our producers. And District Taco is in 20-plus storefronts around Washington, D.C., 450 employees. And my goodness, what a story. And it's every immigrant story is in some ways the same, right? From different places, but everyone can track it in their own families. This story started in Yucatan, Mexico. And boy, when he was young, he didn't have anything. He sold newspapers and flowers on a bike, but learned about standards from his mom. He'd come in with a tomato from the garden and she'd just shake her head. And I know that feeling because my father, my grandfather, was a great cook and I'd go out to the garden and bring in a tomato and he'd shake his head. And to this day, I do it now to my daughter. Those standards get passed along, folks. And by the way, he said, in Mexico, you can't choose the life you want to lead. And so he came to the United States first as a dishwasher, earning minimum wage, learned how to speak English so he could, well, ask his wife out on a date, and built a family, learned a new trade. And in 2008, well, the the ceiling dropped on the economy and his job working in construction. Well, that was over. And in 2008, well, he just had to do something. He'd been laid off and had that moment that, well, no one wants to have. Started that food truck thanks to the generosity of a friend. And look where we are in this story. And it's a story that happens time and again in this great country. Osiris Hoyle's story. District Taco's story. Have one if you're in D.C. Here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. It's titled, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And I, the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as um, 
as as impoverished uh, <laughs> with five. We would be we would be it, it, you know either way we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, it, you know once you're up to four kids and and you're on the salary of a, of a writer. Uh, and and uh, you know my wife is, is mostly a homemaker though she's a lawyer by training. You know we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid childcare. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So I don't have a I don't have any profound thoughts on it except we did what we wanted to do, and it's a free country, so we we were able to do that. Indeed, and and by the way, you note in the piece we are not conservative traditionalists, not Orthodox Jews, old school Catholics, or Mormons. Nor are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle-class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So, <laughs> so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just we're, we're shrinking in numbers. There's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is, is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for, for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community, that's not all based in a couple smaller sects. It's auspicious if there are, you know, lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others for whom this is a real choice. You know irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two. And I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed. And I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids, you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child? And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> <Right>? sometimes <laughs> I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away. And, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. 
forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone said, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. Uh, some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are. They're children, but they're also companions and friends and, and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11-year-old likes poker, and for that, she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's, and that is true. We've trained up the 10-year-old. Our 8-year-old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more, Anna, who's five, and then the, the new boy. We'll get, we'll get him there when he's three or four. But if we could have a good five- or six-person you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this because my 13-year-old is a fearless Hold'em player because he's always playing with my money. Well, we, you got to play with chips. I mean, you don't, don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think, that's, I think siblinghood is, is wonderful. I was really lucky... I am really lucky to have three siblings, and, um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I, do, I don't believe that – I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely. and Because not being inclined to rock climbing – Microdosing or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties, so right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I, you know, how could, I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way... It gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think 
marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know it's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So <laughs> every every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44, and my son was just born. So... You know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more, but uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of The Wall Street Journal. I say, yes, we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a Ph.D. in religious studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like The New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. 